you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, the epistle of 1 Peter. It's toward the very end of your New Testament. So if you've gotten to Revelation, you've gotten a little too far, just turn left, then it's a couple small books before that. 1 Peter, we'll be this morning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. As last week, we began a new series in this epistle. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Our Father, by Your Spirit, come and please help us. We pray that He would be our teacher this morning. Assist us in the consideration of Your Word and bring the truths of this passage to bear on our lives in wonderful ways, ways that ultimately make us more like your Son, the Lord Jesus, more fit for heaven. pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we're beginning a new series in this epistle of First Peter, and last week we considered something of Peter's biography. Of course, it's really impossible to do that exhaustively in one sermon, but we did a broad sweep of the life of Peter. We considered Peter in three stages. We considered him before he came to know the Lord. We considered him as an Orthodox Jew waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And we looked at John 1 when Peter is first told that the Christ has come, that we have found the Messiah, the one of whom Moses wrote of in the law, the King of Israel, and how, of course, he does in fact come to meet Jesus himself. And his name is changed from Simon to Cephas, which means Peter. He was waiting for the Messiah, looking for the Messiah. Then we considered him in that second stage of his life, uh, following Jesus as a disciple. And of course, that stage does continue for the rest of his life, but it began with meeting Jesus and hearing those words from the Lord, those famous words that he gives to every individual and to every one of his disciples, follow me. And we considered basic lessons of discipleship Peter learned in his roughly three and a half years of walking with the Lord before His death and resurrection. And then we looked at the later stage of Peter's life, much of which is documented for us in the book of Acts, at least the first half of the book of Acts, and that was Peter preaching Christ as an apostle, waiting for the Christ as an Orthodox Jew, following Christ as a disciple, preaching Christ as an apostle. And we looked particularly at the many ways in which Peter suffered for Christ's sake. And one of the reasons we consider that particular theme in Peter's life is because suffering is very much in the background and then at times in the foreground of Peter's epistle, this epistle of 1 Peter. And the purpose in considering Peter's life was so that understanding something of his biography and what the Bible tells us about Peter can help us in understanding and illuminating many of the passages of 1 Peter. Uh, Well, now, in the writing of this epistle, Scholars believe we're roughly 30 years on from the events of the Gospels. This would have been probably the early 60s AD when the Apostle Peter 
writes. Peter is much older now, of course. He's probably in the final years of his life. As church tradition has it, Peter was martyred in Rome. He was martyred for his attachment to Christ. And this letter, Peter writes, as a circular letter, that is, it was meant to be passed around to many different churches in many different locations, um, addressed to believers all across Asia Minor, which is now like modern-day Turkey, if you know your geography. And if you follow Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, it sort of makes a circle in that region. And so Peter is burdened to convey the truths of this book, this epistle, to the saints that are dispersed all throughout those regions. Now this morning, I'll be considering the opening greeting of verses 1 and 2 and what it teaches us about who we are as the people of God. Now if you're like me, I was, grew up in church, was in church all my life, and whenever I heard that the pastor was going to preach a sermon on the greeting of a letter, I just kind of roll my eyes, like, you know, it's just a greeting. He's just saying, hello, introducing who he is or something like that. Is there a lot for us really to see there? But I'm going to argue this morning that there's a, quite a lot for us to see in this opening greeting and indeed every greeting to every letter in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is not frivolous. These words are inspired by God's Spirit. And these words are profitable for us for instruction and for training in righteousness. And so it's important that we consider these words. And I'll also just note that for Peter in particular, we know that his greetings are by no means random because we have two of his letters, and the greetings in both of those letters couldn't be more dissimilar. So if you just kind of peek over at 2 Peter, he starts the letter in a completely different way. So Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Particular burdens he's conveying in that greeting. Now compare that with the greeting we have in verses 1 through 2 and notice how different they are. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, okay, that's the same. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion and Pontius, Galatia, etc., according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Just these two verses, it's packed, rich content for Christians, particularly to understand who they are as God's people and who they are particularly in relation to God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. So I want to open up this greeting, and I have an unusually elaborate outline this morning. So those taking notes, just try to track with me here. Point number one is verse one, and point number two is verse two, okay? Shall I repeat them? Verse one, and then we'll consider verse two. Consider with me 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter writes, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, traditionally, early church fathers, for example, thought that Peter wrote primarily to a Jewish audience. It's widely believed now among scholars that that's not the case, uh, though he's using Jewish language frequently in the Old Covenant uh, the Jews would be pictured in this way, as being exiles and being dispersed and all of that. Uh, the content of 1 Peter, I think, pretty conclusively would lead us in a different direction, that Peter is probably writing predominantly to a Gentile audience. And I want us to consider particularly the phrase that Peter uses there, those two words, elect exiles. Uh, this is who he's writing to. 
This is how he chooses to describe them and to characterize them. They are elect exiles. Look with me first at that that phrase, exiles, that word exiles. Uh, The Greek word there can be translated variously, exile, alien, uh, foreigner, pilgrim, these types of words. Uh, Children, if you know what an exile is, I don't know that we use that word very much in our day and age, but in those days, if you were thinking of someone who was an exile, it would be someone who was um, uh, uh, somehow evicted or sent out or driven away from their homeland. It could have been through some sort of edict, some sort of natural disaster, some kind of war, but for whatever reason, you would have these people in their home country, and they're driven out of their home country, and they become exiles now in foreign places, places that aren't familiar to them. Now, we live in an increasingly globalized world. Are there many places in the world you can go all over the globe where people speak English, and if they don't, well, you can just pop out your smartphone, and your smartphone can translate things you want to say into the language of the people that you're talking to. And so the significance of what it would mean to be an exile might be a little bit lost on us to some degree. But you could imagine these particular individuals perhaps driven out of Rome, and they're all over Asia Minor now, modern-day Turkey, and what would it have meant for them to be exiles? To be an exile would be to be in a place unfamiliar to you. You're not familiar with the culture and the customs. You're not at home in this particular society, in this particular culture. And more than that, you're homesick probably for your actual home, and you, you miss the customs and the food and the sounds and the smells and the culture that mark your country of origin, your country of birth, and you have this longing for that, that kind of a country. Now, it's possible that the audience to whom Peter is writing would have contained some people who were actual literal exiles. That is, they were actually driven out of their homeland into places that were foreign to them. But I think Peter's use of this word primarily is being used in a metaphorical sort of way. What he says about these Christians being exiles would apply to all of us as well. He's speaking about us being exiles in this world, and he'll elucidate precisely what that means later on in the letter. The word Peter uses, translated exile, is only used once outside of this epistle, once in the New Testament, that is. And that one usage comes in Hebrews chapter 11. You can turn there if you'd like, but you don't have to. Uh, If you're familiar with Christian things and familiar with the Bible, you may be very familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is the passage that's often referred to, at least in our context, as the hall of faith. If you remember that passage. And this is where the writer to the Hebrews is telling the stories of many great Old Testament saints, saints gone before, uh, who persevered by faith and laid hold of the promises by faith and walked with God by faith. And so many well-known characters from the Old Testament are featured in that great line. Abraham is given a, space, a, a place of special prominence in Hebrews chapter 11. And the emphasis is that Abraham, uh, though he did in fact inherit the land that was promised to him, he still was an exile. He still was a foreigner. He still waited for a homeland to come, a country to come, a city whose builder and maker is God, the writer says. Picking up in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, we read this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers, and here's our word, and exiles. Only other time outside of Peter, this word is used in the New Testament. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. In other words, they're not in their homeland. They're looking for their homeland. 
Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Abraham lived in the land of promise, and yet he still, in some sense, acknowledged that he himself was a stranger and an exile on the earth. He recognized, I'm not home, even though I'm in this land that technically God has given to me and I'm supposed to be faithful and fruitful on this land, I'm not where I belong. I am passing through this world as an exile and as a sojourner. This is foreign territory for me. And indeed, that was true for all of the Old Testament saints. It's always been true of God's people. We are exiles in this world. So Peter's use of this term, I think, in 1 Peter chapter 1 is also metaphorical. The, the, the title we've given to this series is Living as Exiles, because that is indeed what Peter is going to teach us. How do we live uh, in this world that is not our home, and how do we prepare for the home that is to come, the home that is heaven? Now, it's worth asking, in what ways are Christians reckoned to be exiles? If we admit Peter's using the term metaphorically, what does he try to communicate then by referring to these Christians as elect exiles? And we'll consider passages later on that, that do bring this up. I'll just summarize, I think, some of the things Peter wishes to communicate by using this term exile to describe Christians. Three things in particular. First of all, very simply, he means to communicate that this world is not our home, that our home is in heaven with the Lord. So Peter will remind these saints that their home uh, that the hope that they are living for and striving for is yet to come. Uh, so, so, so this world, uh, the countries that they would have lived in, the societies that they would have lived in, though they were to be good citizens and they were to respect authority and they were to love their neighbors, it was not their home. They were to be looking for a home to come, a, 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 a city whose builder and maker is God. They were waiting for a living hope that was imperishable, uncorruptible, undefiled, kept for them by God Himself. The world was not their home. And thus, Peter is going to actually promote a certain measure of homesickness in the Christians in these regions. They're to be expecting and looking and longing for that country that is theirs, that home that is theirs, namely heaven with the Lord. The second thing I think Peter is trying to communicate by use of this phrase, exiles, is he's trying to prepare these Christians to some degree for the reality that we are, as believers, uh, the object of the world's hostility. And what does it mean for us to be exiles? Well, it means that this world is not our home, but also we are, to some degree, in hostile territory. Uh, the world does not view natively Christians as friends. The Lord Jesus in the upper room promised this to His disciples. He assured them of this, that the world will hate you on my account, He said to His disciples when He had them gathered there. And one of the things Peter is going to do in this epistle again and again is prepare these Christians for how to, in a gracious and God-honoring way, endure the hostility and opposition of the world. We too in our day need to be prepared to endure the hostility and opposition of the world. We too assume the posture of exiles, and as such we recognize we're in hostile territory. A third reason Peter uses this term, a third thing he wishes to communicate here, I believe, is that we are citizens 
of a different kingdom, of a new kingdom. We're exiles here, and yes, we're citizens of the countries that we live in and that God has called us to, but He's going to try to communicate to these Christians that they are citizens of a different kingdom. And in that sense, church communities, Christian communities, become sort of like embassies of another country in a foreign land. So, so, so churches become like embassies of that future kingdom to come. We are citizens of that kingdom, and this is the embassy uh, where, where the culture of the kingdom is promoted, where the way of life of the king is preached, and we seek to live in accord with his customs and his law and his ways, but the embassy is placed in foreign territory, right? And Peter is going to take great pains in this letter to try to train the Christians, to teach these Christians how to live faithfully, distinctively as citizens of that coming kingdom. We are citizens of that kingdom now, and we're in a sense waiting for the coming of that kingdom also. In the meantime, we are to live as good citizens of that kingdom, even as we work through our period of exile in this world. So we're exiles in a world that's not our own, and yet we do have a way of life the king has called us to. We're citizens of his kingdom. We're seeking to follow his law and his ways and to honor him through distinctively holy lives that speak to our country of origin, where our true citizenship lies. So thus, Peter uses this word exile, and I think these are three of the main ways he's going to put that word to use in this epistle to 1 Peter. But now notice that word that modifies exile. He calls them elect exiles. Elect exiles. We could say chosen exiles. Elect of God. Chosen of God. Elect exiles. And, and I wonder if you sense a, a certain kind of dissonance between those words, a juxtaposition. They don't quite go together. The, the idea, I think, is that these Christians would have been exiles in the world, in some sense outcasts, foreigners, aliens. They didn't quite fit. They didn't quite belong. This wasn't their home. They were exiles. And yet, Peter says, before God, you're chosen. You're elect. You belong. Elect exiles. It really is striking language that Peter uses here. Chosen by God, though an alien and a foreigner in the world. Now, of course, when we talk about the concept of election in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, what we're talking about is how God condescended to look upon the mass of sinful humanity and determined to elect or to choose sinful individuals from among the sons and daughters of Adam to be His special people, who He would in time save and cause to be born again and to be justified and to be brought in reconciled relationship with Him. So God's people Israel under the old covenant were said to be His elect people. God chose them from among the nations. He determined that this people group, this nation, they will be mine. I will make them my special people. He elected them. He chose them. And by the way, He did so for no reasons that the Israelites themselves supplied. In fact, the Lord says, you're the least among the peoples. There was nothing about you in you that would have drawn me to elect you and to choose you. Rather, for God's own purposes and the mystery of His own will, He chose them to bring about His purposes in and through them. He elected the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. They belonged to Him in a special way. Well, now Peter is writing to a predominantly Gentile group who probably had some familiarity with the Old Testament, 
who the Israelites were as God's chosen people. He writes to a predominantly Gentile group scattered throughout Asia Minor and says to them, they have now, through Christ, become God's elect people. God has chosen them. God has elected them. God has brought them into reconciled relationship with Him. And though they may be outcasts and exiles in the world, to Him they are chosen and precious. Uh, You might remember the passage in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There again, election is in view, and the wisdom of God being demonstrated in election is in view. And there Paul says that the Lord chose what was weak in the world, to put to shame the strong, uh, that He chose what was low and despised, even those things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are. He says, not many of you were of noble birth, not many of you were great and mighty and strong, but God, in the mystery of His will, chose you and gave you this place of privilege, brought you into reconciled relationship with Him. He elected you. He chose you. And it's interesting, in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it, it almost seems that, that God had a preference for those who already were outcasts and were exiles in some ways. He says, not many of you were of noble birth, but He chose weak people, poor people, needy people to draw into relationship with Him. Well, that's how this is presented to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Similar idea in our text in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, but I think there's a slightly different nuance here. I think it's the election of God itself that would have made these Christians exiles. Does that make sense? So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that the Lord's choosing these people, many of them were already outcasts and they were weak and they were despised and low and all of that. Here, Peter seems to be saying that it's through election that we gain this status as exiles. God has chosen us out of the world so that we would live as exiles in the world. Through what He has done, we become exiles, citizens of a new kingdom. He elects us and chooses us, and thus we now have this status of being exiles. This world is not our home. Now, the notion that we are elect exiles, that we are elect of God, chosen of God, should produce in us, and surely it produced in these Christians, a number of feelings and a number of thoughts. Let me just mention three. That we are elect of God, chosen of God, first of all, should produce in us a sense of privilege. A sense of privilege. Now, young people, I know that word privilege nowadays is, is, is often used as a sort of negative idea. If you have privilege, you need to repent of that privilege and somehow get rid of your privilege or something like that. Well, that's not the way the Bible talks about privilege, okay? Privilege is a gift of God. What matters is what you do with your privilege, obviously. Are you a good steward of the privilege God has given you? But there's nothing wrong with us feeling (laughs) through what God has done in Christ, through election, through choosing us and bringing us into reconciled relationship with God through His Son. It is in every way appropriate that we would feel this sense of privilege, which, by the way, is the opposite of feeling entitled, as though I deserve this. God is just recognizing what... You know, most of my fellow men can't recognize that I really am spectacular, I really am worthy of a lot of attention, I really am something special, and God has given me the attention that I deserve. That's an attitude of entitlement. But rather, the attitude election is meant to produce in us is, is this sense of privilege that, 
in spite of me, my many sins, all the ways I've rebelled against God, all the ways I've dishonored Him, He's chosen me. He's elected me, and He's drawn me into this place of privilege that I'm now regarded as a son and a daughter of God. It's, it's, it's all privilege. No, no one belongs here. No one, no one qualified themselves for this station of being God's elect exiles, God's chosen exiles. God says, I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. Our status as the elect of God is purely the result of the unmerited, unearned grace and favor of God. And I think it's important we appreciate this because I do think sometimes we can talk about the Lord's love for us. Of course, the Lord does love us, but we can talk about it in a way that can, can sort of um, it could sound humble, but really try to more emphasize how Christ identified something in us that really was valuable. So, so we sing songs, or you'll hear messages along this line, that, 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 that like I was worthy, and I was valuable, and, and God just had to have me. You know, that God, God has really seen me for who I am. He sees me as worthy. He sees me as valuable. And though my friends and my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whoever, though they don't really see it, God sees me for who I am as so wonderful and so worthy of His affection. Now, there is a seedling of an idea in that that is very sweet and very lovely, but it's not predominantly the way the Bible talks about our salvation. The Bible sees man in his sin as black, as unworthy, as sinful, as rebellious against God. Doesn't view us as, as so dignified and worthy of the affection and attention of the Lord Jesus. Rather, in spite of our sin and our blackness and all the things that make us ashamed, God, for reasons unknown to me, showered His grace and His love and mercy on me and took every initiative to make me His own. We are the Lord's people fully and totally and only by the sovereign grace of God. And we are His people in spite of our sins. God had to take the most drastic measures in sending His own Son to die for our sins so that we can be brought into right relationship with Him. And this produces in us a sense of privilege. I don't belong here. I didn't push my way into this position. I didn't earn this place among the Lord's people. And what this would have meant to those Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor they might have been distressed by various circumstances. They might have felt harassed by the surrounding society. They might have been confused and prone to doubt the goodness of God. And Peter says, you are elect. You are chosen. Sovereign grace has grabbed hold of you and made you one of the Lord's people. And as such, you are brought into a place of spectacular privilege. A couple of other things, election, the doctrine of election, our identity as the elect of God should produce in us Secondly, it should produce in us a sense of being cherished by God. Chosen by God, brought into a place of privilege, we should also feel a sense of being cherished by God. Not because of our inherent value and all these great qualifications we bring to the table, but because of God's grace and mercy alone. Those He saves are His delight, as the song goes. Those who are chosen of God are to be seen as belonging to Him, as precious to Him. He loves them. In the equip class hour before this, we considered briefly what it meant that the Lord Jesus, you know, that He nourishes and cherishes the church like His own body. 
That's the language that she used. He nourishes and cherishes the church. For all who are God's elect, He cherishes them. Again, not for anything we have supplied by way of reason, but through the grace and mercy of God. Martin Luther said in one of the 95 theses, that great reformer Martin Luther, um, said that God's love does not find, but rather creates that which it loves. God's love does not find, that is, He, he looks upon us, all He sees is blackness, darkness, sin, rebellion. God's love does not find that which it loves, rather He creates that which He loves. He gives new birth. He gives the new nature. Through the grace Christ supplies, He brings righteousness and He brings holiness. God's love does not find but creates that which it, suppl- or that which it loves. And therefore, the Lord cherishes us because of what His grace accomplishes in our lives. A third and uh, final point I'll make on election, and that is that election should produce in us also a sense of calling. A sense of calling. God's people, Israel, were called for a purpose. As God's people, they were called to obedience. They were called to show forth the character of God. To be God's chosen people, to be His elect, brings with it a calling. And in 1 Peter, Peter will open this up to us. It is a calling to holiness. It is a calling to distinctive kingdom living. It is a calling to live as a chosen people and as a holy priesthood and to honor God with our lives. To be elect is to be called by God to obedience and to holiness. That's verse 1. We're told that we are elect exiles. These are the ones to whom Peter writes. Now consider with me verse 2. Verse 1 says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Verse 2, there's there's three clauses here and they modify the elect exiles. So who are these elect exiles? Some of the translations actually supply the word chosen before or in verse 2, is exiles, elect exiles are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Three phrases, three clauses that modify the elect exiles or tell us more about who these elect exiles are. We'll consider each one, but notice, you see the Trinitarian shape There in verse 2, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We're told where we stand in relationship to the members of the Trinity and the activity of these different persons of the Godhead are emphasized each in turn. So first of all, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. All right, let's just make this clear from the get-go. When you see that word foreknowledge in the Bible, when you see it here in our text, the idea is not that God is some kind of holy seer or something like that, that He can see the future um, and that He, he kind of knows what's going to happen before it happens, and so that's an exercise of His foreknowledge. That's not the idea at all. The word is never used in that way in the New Testament. It's not like he's looking out at a future that he doesn't know anything about or that he's not determined or influenced in any way. Rather, he determined the future. All the future takes place at God's decree. God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And this word foreknowledge is is covenantal language. It's relational language. 
that God knew us beforehand, knew us in a relational way, not just in the sense that He knew we would exist and He knew the number of hairs on our head, but He knew us in terms of, re- of relationship. Like, like, like a husband knows his wife, a wife knows her husband. The Lord beforehand, in other passages, speaks of before the foundations of the world, He knew us. He set His love on us. We were chosen according to His foreknowledge. There was a divine purpose. There was a divine plan. And even before we were born, God's love was set on us. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now think about these Christians scattered all throughout Asia Minor. We learn later in the epistle that they're suffering all kinds of things. Some of them are probably suffering physical persecution. Most of them would be suffering, perhaps all of them would be suffering some measure of social and relational persecution. They're being ostracized, they're being, they're being put out of various communities, they're being perhaps threatened or intimidated in various ways, they're being mocked and, 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 and uh, disregarded for their faith, and there's all sorts of pressure on them. And life could feel so uncertain, life could feel so trying, the circumstances of life could seem so difficult. Perhaps there were some of these Christians that were prone to doubt and prone to be discouraged. They're thinking, has the Lord forgotten about me? What am I going to do in the face of all these difficult and trying things? Peter says, don't forget, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God has not forgotten about you. He doesn't forget about His people. He knew you before you were born. And He has taken every initiative to bring you into the most intimate kind of relationship with Him, a covenantal relationship with Him, a relationship based on knowledge and real relationship and communion. He's not forgotten about you. Undergirding your life is the sovereign grace of God, the sovereign foreknowledge of God the Father. And that word Father is used to emphasize this relationship we've been brought into. And the idea is that though some Christians might be feeling that with the trials that are around me, with the vicissitudes of this life, with all these things that provide pressure and difficulty and trial to me, there's a firm place to place my feet. My life is undergirded by the sovereign foreknowledge of God the Father. He knows me. He knew me before the foundations of the world, and He is working out His purposes in my life, and He has determined that I would live in fellowship with Him, and by His initiatives that will be accomplished. They were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Secondly, they were chosen as elect exiles. The ESV reads, in the sanctification of the Spirit. It would be better translated by or through the sanctification of the Spirit. They were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctification or through the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, Again, if you're well-initiated in Christian things, you might be familiar with the terms justification and sanctification. So, so when we speak of justification, we're talking about that one-time act of God's free grace whereby He pardons all of our sins, declares us to be righteous in His sight. We become right with the judge. Through the forgiveness of our sins, through union with Christ, we are justified. We become right with God. And then we use this phrase, sanctification. And typically, when Christians use that phrase, sanctification, they're talking about our progressive growth in holiness. So it would begin after our justification or at our justification, and it's about growing steadily to be more like Christ and to be more holy, to be sanctified. It's progressive. Okay, that is not precisely how the word is being used here. Uh, The idea is like sanctification, like 
consecration, like being set apart for holy use, it would encompass our progressive growth in holiness. But I think that Peter has something more decisive and instantaneous in mind, that by God's Spirit, He did everything. He took the initiative. It was His activity to remove us to a place of impur- from a place of impurity and uncleanness and unholiness, bringing us, consecrating us, setting us apart now to be the Lord's people, to be holy, to live distinct lives. The emphasis is on what God has done by His Spirit. In keeping with this theme of divine initiative and divine action, I think that's how this phrase is meant to function. We have been elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the activity of the Spirit whereby He sanctifies us, consecrates us, sets us apart, and brings us into this place of salvation and right relationship with God. I think that's more the idea here. And thus, again, it is God's initiative that is emphasized. It is the activity of God's Spirit, what God has done to bring us into a place of holiness, a place of being set apart for God's purposes, a place of being exiles in this world and at home in the kingdom of God. We have been chosen and elect through or by the sanctification of God's Spirit. And then we have that third and final clause, which speaks to purpose. We have become elect exiles, we're chosen of God for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Purpose, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Let's just take those two ideas if we could separate them for a moment. Well, we're elect, we're chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, we're sanctified in the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, if you have been with us at Emmanuel Church for any length of time, we have seen this again and again. That, that the reason, one of the reasons at least, that God elects us and chooses us and saves us and brings us into right relationship with Him is so that we would be obedient, so that we would obey the Lord, that we would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ, that we would live holy lives that are well-pleasing to Him. So we had a series in the book of Ephesians, uh, I guess it's a few years ago now, a couple of years ago now. In Ephesians 2, we're told that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that we're sinful by nature, but But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And the passage goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. And then it says, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, that we should walk in them. We're not saved by works, of course. But Paul says, we're saved for works. We're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. It's God's chosen people who He's regenerated and who He's changing. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? Why has He done all this in my life? For good works that we should walk in them. So, Christian, if you're wondering, what does God want me to do with my life? What's my life all about? What's my calling? One of the most simple answers I could give is that you're called to walk in good works. You're called to walk in godliness and in holiness. That is God's will for your life. As Paul says in Romans 8, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. We saw this in our previous series in Titus, Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared to all, uh, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and teaching us how to live upright and godly lives in the present age. And it says, Christ has redeemed us from all lawlessness to purify a people for himself, a people who are zealous for good works. What is God's purpose in electing you and saving you and bringing you into right relationship with him? It is for obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, one of the things we should be most passionate about, one of the things that should be our greatest delight is studying out the will of our Savior, learning what he has called us to and how he wants us to live and what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom, and living out those things, that law, those principles. We want to walk in the ways of righteousness, the ways that the Lord Jesus has laid out for us in his word, because this is part of the very purpose for why God called us and elected us and saved us for obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Christian, wherever you are, whatever your situation, this should consume your mind and your heart. How can I be obedient to the Lord? Because this is what He has called me to. This is part of the very purpose for why He saved me, not as a means of earning favor with God or maintaining your place in the family of God, but as a way of honoring God and bringing glory to Him. And that's all good and well. That seems to make a lot of sense, right, in the flow of this verse. But then we have that phrase, and for the sprinkling with His blood. I get it from lots of other places, right? I'm chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. I get that. God wants me to be obedient, and that's part of the reason why He saved me and brought me into relationship with Him. But what do we make of that phrase if we accept that this is a purpose clause for sprinkling with His blood. What does that have to do with anything? What is the idea there? And several thoughts have been suggested by commentators and theologians throughout the history of the church. Perhaps it has something to do with baptism. Perhaps it has in view the actual suffering that Christians might experience, like Christians might have to shed their blood in obedience to Christ. I don't think those are the ideas at all. Okay, this is one of those places in the New Testament where it would really help to have a good working understanding of the Old Testament, because I think there's a very specific passage that Peter has in mind. Now, remember, Peter is a Jew, and he had ministered for many years among the Jews. I'm arguing he's writing now to a predominantly Gentile audience, people that were formerly outside the covenant people of God, and now he's telling them, no, 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 you're God's elect. All the peoples of the world those who are redeemed by the Lamb become part of God's elect family. You've been brought into this place of privilege. Okay, so, so I think in an effort to further establish that point that, that, that you now have inherited this place of privilege, this place of being cherished by God as His elect people, He's going to call their minds to one of the most climactic Old Testament passages. It's found in Exodus 24, and for the sake of time, I won't ask you to turn there. But in Exodus chapter 24, the events of God's deliverance of His people out of the land of Egypt have taken place. They have, they have been miraculously delivered from the hands of the Egyptians and from those who held them in bondage, and they've crossed the Red Sea, and God has given His law. And this ceremony takes place. Here comes Moses, God's prophet, God's man. Here are the people at the foot of the mountain. And there's this ceremony that takes place. Moses has filled in a basin the blood of a bull. 
and he is reading to the Israelites the book of the law. This is God's law. These are the terms of the covenant. He's reading this to them, the book of the covenant to them. And what happens on that occasion is is there's some sort of response Moses calls for from the people. And they say, we will be obedient to the Lord. We'll follow the Lord. He'll be our God. We will be his people. And then what Moses does is he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. So the obedience of the people, the sprinkling of the blood together in that covenant ceremony. And of course, the Israelites would have known that the blood was representative of atonement, that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. And there was a many hundreds of years of sacrifices being performed to represent something of the atonement that God would bring about. And so here's a sprinkling of blood that, in a sense, purified them, cleansed them from sin. And it was in this way, Israel saying, God will be our God, and God saying, you will be my people. I'll make provision for you. I'll cover you, sprinkle you with this blood. Well, now here you are, some 1,200 years later, 1,300 years later, whatever the case may be, and here you are, these scattered people throughout Asia Minor. This is the picture that Peter brings to mind. You're chosen, you're God's elect, you've come into this place of privilege. And through now the new covenant, what Jesus has done in the shedding of his own blood, you have become my people. That entails upon us that we follow him in obedience. He sprinkles us with blood to cover for every stain of sin. You see the picture. And, and you could imagine being one of these Gentiles thinking, how can this be? I'm nobody. Who was I? I grew up in paganism. I grew up with my idols, and I grew up with following these wicked and perverse ways. And How can this be that that, that picture can in any way apply to me? that I could be reckoned as one of the Lord's people and one of those who benefits from the shedding of blood, that I could be one of God's elect. But this is the picture. For obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of His blood, those who were far off have been brought near, and they now enter into this place of being God's covenant people, His elect people, His elect exiles. And what that surely would have created in these Christians, it ought to generate in us as well, this sense of wonder, the sense of privilege in the face of the grace of God that we have become the Lord's people through His initiatives, through what God has done. He has elected us according to the foreknowledge of the Father by the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and for the sprinkling with blood. And that blood can apply to me and can cleanse me, makes me free from sin. And now I follow Him in obedience as his people. Well, Peter will get to this later on, but I have you here now, and I don't know that any of you will be here next week. I don't know that I'll be here next week. Life is fleeting. Life is short. All we have is right now. The truth is, for all those who embrace the sacrifice that God has provided, he's pleased to bring them into a place of favor with him, of right relationship with him, 
This new covenant relationship where we become God's people, where we enter into right standing with Him, it's open to all. The sprinkling of blood is available to all. If you would have something of this privilege of being favored by God and being in the standing of grace and mercy and compassion, you could have that today. Through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, His blood was shed for sinners. And if you come to Him embracing His sacrifice, repenting of sin, putting your faith and trust in His initiatives, what He has done to provide a way of salvation, the message of the gospel is that you will be saved and you will be brought into this place of glorious privilege, glorious favor, in spite of all that you've done that makes you ashamed and ought to make you ashamed. All the black records, all the marks in your past of sin and offense and rebellion against God, that can all be done away with through the sprinkling of blood, and you can be brought into right relationship with God, and you can live a life of holiness and obedience to the Lord through what God's Spirit does in our hearts. Let's pray together. Our Father, the gospel confers upon those of us who are your people, brings about for those who are your people privilege upon privilege upon privilege. Cause us more and more in a renewed way to esteem the privilege we have as those who have been chosen by your grace, have become your elect exiles, chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, by the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ and for the sprinkling of blood. We pray, Father, that our sense of this privilege would enlarge our sense of the grace of God, enlarge our love for you, would generate in us more hatred of sin, more love for holiness. We pray that you would help us more and more as we sojourn as exiles in this world, to recognize this world is not our home, but that we are citizens of a new kingdom and a coming kingdom. May we live as faithful citizens of that kingdom now in our day and age. May you help us to live faithfully as your elect exiles. Teach us in the coming days through our consideration of this epistle what it means to live faithfully before you as your people. We pray, Father, that that love that was shown to us, so many of us here who are your people, that it would sweetly draw others in, uh, that others like us who were dead in sin, so far outside of your grace, would you do the work of drawing them even now to your Son, the Lord Jesus, that they would embrace the sacrifice he made on the cross for sinners. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.